This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Very best bits of today's show. It is a Friday, 9th of December. Coming up, we're going to be talking to Katija Hack, Chief Economist at Emirates NBD. Dubai has a new budget and Katija and the team have been crunching the numbers. Also looking at the big Saudi trade deal signed with China overnight. Wei Shi Zi is director at the Economist Intelligence Unit in Shanghai. He joined us live. And finally, the metaverse. What does it mean for a luxury retailer? Nick Vinkia is head of corporate innovation at Shalub Group here in Dubai. All of that to come. First up, though, here are some of our top stories today. The FTX Uh, scandal continuing to roll on, Richard Dean? Yeah, that's right. High-profile investor Kevin O'Leary has been speaking. Who's he? So he's uh, a Canadian business person, but well-known in the United States. He made his money in the 1990s in software, sold his software company and became a multimillionaire. And since then, has been a regular on shows like Shark Tank and Dragon's Den and CNBC, the popular business TV show. So he's a very well-known figure. Actually, we spoke to him about three or four months ago on The Business Breakfast when he was in Abu Dhabi. And he was a brand ambassador for FTX, the crypto exchange that went bust. So he is copying a lot of flack. In fact, he's being sued by investors in FTX, said, why did you endorse a company that was so flawed? He's not the only one being uh, sued as well. You, The... Um, Uh, The American football player, Tom Brady, was an ambassador for FTX as well. Others as well. They're being sued by investors saying, you should not have endorsed. So, and they were paid to endorse it. You should not have endorsed this organization because you led other people to trust their money with it. Anyway, that's the backstory. What's the new news? The new news is that he's come out overnight and said he lost 15.15 million dollars from his involvement with FTX. Let's have a listen to him, Kevin O'Leary, speaking on CNBC. Total deal was just under $15 million, all in, including uh, a bunch of uh, agents and, uh, that I had to pay because I needed SAG after release to be able to do commercials for it, in and when I did that. I put about $9.7 million into crypto. Uh, I think that's what I've lost. It's all at zero. I don't know because my account got scraped a couple of weeks ago. All the data, all the coins, everything. So and then I lost the money I invested in the equity as well. Those are, those are zeros too. It was not a good investment, Andrew. Okay, I don't make right. great investments all the time. Luckily, I make more good ones than bad ones, but that was a bad one. That's Kevin O'Leary, the Canadian business person, talking about his involvement with FTX. $15 million, he says he has lost. But it could be more if those lawsuits are successful. Another story that's catching the eye um, on the international markets is this uh, fraud case that gets underway over in Germany. Uh, Wirecard, the Wirecard case, uh, starts today. Germany's biggest fraud trial uh, will start underground, uh, the once publicly listed company worth billions, uh, which had, of course, the former Chancellor of Germany, Angela Merkel, lobbying on its behalf at its time, uh, will be up in front of the beak. Germany's biggest fraud case in history gets underway today as the former executives of payments company Wirecard uh, will stand trial after a scandal that uh, not just rocked the German establishment, but rocked uh, the banking establishment uh, across much of Europe. In a new, newly built, bomb-proof court, 
uh, built five metres or 16 foot underground uh, to try um, ordinarily terror suspects. Uh, the CEO, Marcus Braun, will appear. <laughs> Seems a bit extreme. Does it seem a little bit extreme? I mean... What, is there a is there a number on his back at the moment or something? I mean, there's a few people I'm sure who'd love to have a, a a very frank conversation with him, but you can't imagine that he's a target, can you? You wouldn't have thought so. I mean, it's a it's fraud and it, it's a trial and he's innocent until proven guilty. But yeah, that's that that strikes me as excessive. It's a little I, excessive. Here I mean, in- I know like the the, the you know the um the 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 Netherlands um, businessman, shall we call him? Yep. Uh, with the big nose. Yep. Uh, who was tried in the Netherlands, and he was tried basically in a in a underground bunker. That's right. Um, but he was involved in organised crime, yeah. And therefore, there's a lot going on in that. This is not. No one's suggesting this is organised crime. No, it's it's, it's it's like an Enron or something, isn't it? It's strange that that, that they have taken such such security measures, but. Uh, yeah, it, it, it'll be one that is obviously going to run for quite some time. We'll have all sorts of stories coming out of it. I mean, for those that weren't in the know, Wirecard, uh, at one point, sort of the poster child um, uh, for finance or fintech over in uh, in Europe. At one point, I think it was valued at around about $28 billion. A proper fall from grace, wasn't it, Dini? Oh, completely, yeah. yeah. And it was, as you say, a poster child for certainly the German tech industry, but the European tech industry in general. But it turned out to be a bit of a house of cards. There is a Dubai link to this Ooh. because a couple of years ago, German prosecutors arrested the head of a Dubai-based subsidiary of Wirecard. The Munich prosecutor's office said at the time that it questioned the chief executive of Card Systems Middle East about what was uh, happening with Wirecard. Um, Wirecard filed for insolvency back in 2020, owing creditors about 17 billion dirhams after disclosing a massive hole in its accounts that an auditor, uh, EY, said was the result of a sophisticated global fraud. But they, they did have a base here in Dubai, and it was not the epicentre of it. But it, Dubai is mentioned in dispatches, <laughs> in, in dispatches. the underground bunker. <laughs> uh, uh, the other sillier side on this one is, yeah, it gets underway today. We are not expecting a verdict until the year after next. 2024 is when we expect a verdict on this one. Uh, at the very earliest, they say, as well, uh, with hundreds of court dates um, scheduled throughout the whole of next year. Um, so, again, it's one of these ones that will run and run and run and we'll ever get to the bottom of it. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's talk about the Dubai budget in a little bit more detail. Katija Hack is with us. She is the Chief Economist at Emirates MBD with us in the studio. Good morning, Katija. Good morning, Richard. Thanks very much indeed for being with us. So, overnight, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid, in his capacity as ruler of Dubai, approving the Emirates budget, not just for next year, but for three years up to 2025, 205 billion dirhams of spending. What have we learned? So they always give us a three-year kind of rolling budget, but they do tweak it every year for the following year. I think what's interesting for 2023 is that there's a 
big jump in expected revenue for the government of Dubai. So income is projected to go up by about 20%. And I think that speaks to the recovery in Dubai's economy, the fact that the government is able to generate much more tax income, as well as obviously dividends on uh, entities that they own and, and investments as well. So I think that speaks to the strength and robustness of Dubai's economy, which they are obviously expecting to continue next year. Um, and then with that 20% increase in income, they've increased um, spending, projected spending by 13%. So again, that's um, quite a big jump, is, isn't it? It is. It's putting some of it back into uh, investing in infrastructure primarily, but also social services, education, housing, etc. But the other key point is that this budget is now projected to be um, uh, to record a small surplus of around one and a half billion dirhams next year. That's the first um, anticipated surplus uh, since 2019. So again, you know, really a recovery from the pandemic. We had a lot of um, additional spending and a drop in revenue during the lockdown periods. And all of that now has been, you know, fully unwound. And, and most of this is, well, it's not oil income, is it? The UAE still produces a bit of hydrocarbons, but not much. It's not a major factor in the budget, is it? Am I right? No. So they've said only 5% of their expected income is coming from oil and gas. Um, and we know that that's not a big driver of Dubai's economy. We're a services-based economy. So there was a focus on um, tourism, the recovery in international tourism, more people coming through Dubai. Um, spending some time here, shopping here, and and obviously contributing to uh, to tax revenues, and then of course don't forget the recovery in real estate as well would would have been a big contributor to tax income this year um, because we we pay uh, land tax every time you you buy and sell a property. So um, I think all of those factors together, uh, I suspect twenty twenty two probably turned out to be better than planned. Um, but we, we don't actually have any details on the outcome of the 2022 budget. We've just been given the expectations for next year. Yeah, I remember on the on the real estate tax thing, I remember when I bought my house, and it's a while ago now, six or seven years ago, 170,000 dirhams was yes, the check I had money. to write for just for tax on the transaction, which is fine. You know, I, I love living in Dubai, happy to pay it, but... It's not. It's, it's well, not lunch money. No, it's everywhere though, right? So you know, in the UK as well, when you um, when you buy a house, you have to pay some stamp duty. Um, and I think the Dubai numbers are still much lower than what you'd be paying uh, in in a lot of European countries. Um, but it is absolutely a, a source of revenue for the government, and I think that sector has performed particularly well this year. So I think would have contributed to perhaps higher than and higher than expected income in 2022. On the subject of revenues for the government, 2023 will be the year when profit tax comes in. Any company earning more than 365,000 dirhams will pay 9% tax on the profits that they make. What impact do we think that might have on an emirate like Dubai? Because the tax is federal, uh, and yet obviously the Dubai budget is is an emirate level. And I know we've been down this road before in terms of VAT. Well, who gets it? It's a federal tax, but does does Sharjah get it if you're you're shopping in Sharjah? Does Ajman get it if you're shopping in Ajman? Do we have any clarity on that yet? Um, so with the with the VAT, that is exactly how it works. So the emirates that contribute um, the most will get 
a sizable chunk of that VAT um, income back once they've taken off a portion for the federal government and a portion for administrative expenses. It basically goes back to where the taxes were generated. I would expect a similar kind of process for the corporate tax. I will say, though, that it only starts taking effect in July 2023. And because most company tax years are annual and it's an annual tax, we only probably will see the income from the middle of 2024 um, and, and the second half of 2024 because companies will look at their financials at the end of their uh, fiscal year and not all of the fiscal years will start in July. They may start January 2024. So that, you know, I, I don't think that that impact is going to show up in next year's uh, tax income, um, but I think it's something that will um, contribute from 2024 onwards. Uh, very quickly, a couple of international stories to ask you about, just a, a minute on each of them. Xi Jinping, in Saudi Arabia, big trade deal signed yesterday. How significant is it that Xi Jinping is in Saudi Arabia and this region? No, it's very important. China is a huge customer for the GCC in terms of oil. So most of its oil comes from our region. And in fact, I think Saudi Arabia is the single biggest source for uh, China's imports of, of crude oil. Um, but also in terms of non-oil trade, it's a key partner. So we know for the UAE, for example, that China is one of the biggest uh, non-oil trade partners along with India. And that's something that's been growing over time. We've seen a lot of um, you know, visits from GCC leaders to China. Um, and, and this is obviously one uh, a reciprocal visit. Um, there has also been a push to increase direct investment between uh, the two countries. So Saudi Arabia, for example, has invested in refineries in, in China. And I suspect that part of the agreements um, on the back of this visit will be for increased Chinese investment perhaps into the kingdom because don't forget they've got a lot of big projects and they are looking for foreign direct investment to help finance those projects. So this is potentially an additional um, source of, uh, of investment. Um, so I think, you know, it does speak to the strength of the relationship between the GCC and China um, and the fact that the GCC is quite uh, pragmatic about how it looks at its trade relationships. Yes, um, you know, it's very much focused on uh, maintaining ties with uh, the United States, with Europe, with G7 countries, but it's also equally looking at, you know, where does it get most of its um, revenue from? And that's very much uh, the East. I've got in my head the images, I'm sure you can remember them as well, of uh, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. He's president now, he wasn't then, on the Great Wall of China in a visit before lockdown with his entourage, which is a great image. 30 seconds left, Katija, massive week of economic data next week. Yes, it's really a central bank week next week. So we've got the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank and the Bank of England all scheduled to meet and all scheduled to raise rates over two days at the end of next week. We're expecting uh, the Fed to slow its pace of hiking to 50 basis points. We think the ECB might actually surprise with a 75 basis point um, increase given that inflation in the Eurozone is still very, very high. And we think the Bank of England will deliver another 50 basis point increase in rates as well. So no pre-Christmas lull for you and the team? No, Gifts from central bankers, no. <laughs> Look forward to that. Uh, Katija Hack, thanks for getting up early to share your thoughts on that. Really appreciate it. That's the thoughts of Katija Hack of Emirates MBD. She's the chief economist. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Crossing live to China now for some perspective on that deal between China and Saudi Arabia. Wei Si Ji is director with the Economist Intelligence Unit based in Shanghai. Joins us now live. Wei Si, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Good morning from Shanghai to you as well. Thank you indeed. So they've signed what's called a comprehensive strategic partnership 
agreement. Is this just symbolic handshaking or is there some economic substance to this, Weixi? Uh, absolutely. This is actually the highest uh, status that China can offer to any foreign uh, relations, suggesting that China is uh, going to deepen its uh, relations with Saudi Arabia in almost any aspect possible, including economic uh, cooperation, uh, political cooperation, as well as other areas. So this is definitely the highest level of bilateral relations of China's diplomatic uh, policy. So what would be the likely consequences of this? Are we going to see more Chinese firms setting up in Saudi Arabia, more Saudi Arabian firms investing in China, for example, in a year or two's time, when we're looking at the impact of this agreement, what tangibly will we have seen? Well, uh, those uh, uh, things that you just mentioned are definitely foreseeable in uh, in the near future, especially uh, this morning we read the news that uh, the two countries have already signed uh, dozens of deals uh, with initial values of over 29 US dollar, uh, 29 billion US dollars. And uh, these uh, deals, including investment from China uh, to Saudi Arabia in areas such as technology, uh, uh, energy uh, sector, as well as manufacturing. And so we are definitely going to be seeing more Chinese uh, firms investing in Saudi Arabia. And uh, on the other hand, China is definitely going to uh, increase and secure sources, uh, I mean, secure Saudi Arabia uh, crude oil as very sustainable sources uh, of energy over the next five to 10 years at least. So definitely we're going to be seeing a deepening relationship, uh, uh, deepening economic ties between these two countries uh, in the next uh uh, years to come. Also, uh, in the deal of the Comprehensive uh, Strategic Partnership Agreement, uh, Mr. Xi, uh, the president uh, of China, have agreed to meet with uh, King Solomon, the leader of the uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, every two years, suggesting that these two countries are intended to keep a sustainable and long-term relationship uh, over the next uh, uh, five to ten years at least. Two of the things, I've been reading your analysis, Wei Shi, of this, and there's two sectors in particular that you've picked up on. One is telecommunications, and the other is electric vehicles, both of which China is very, very strong in. What can we expect in those two fields, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in the wider region? We're here in the United Arab Emirates, a a neighbour of Saudi Arabia. What can we expect to see in the field of telecoms and electric vehicles? Absolutely. Actually, Mr. Xi is going to be having a uh, summit with uh, uh, leaders from Arabian worlds as the Gulf uh, area uh, today. Uh, I'm definitely expecting a expansion of China's cooperation in those areas, not just in Saudi Arabia, but in the other uh, countries in the Arabian world, uh, in uh, electronic vehicles, as well as uh, the uh, telecommunication networks for uh, infrastructures, suggesting that China will be investing and help uh, building up uh, manufacturing uh, manufacturing plants, as well as uh, infrastructure uh, networks in those two uh, sectors uh, in uh, uh, in countries in the Arabian world. And uh, according to my uh, note to you, uh, my previous note to you, uh, these are actually very important sectors of the vision of the uh, Prince 
uh, Prince Mohammed bin uh, Salman uh, for his visions of our country in the, uh, in uh, in 2030, and we definitely see that his uh, his visions will be expanded to the other countries in the region, where China definitely will play a very important role for the development of these two sectors uh, in the countries, uh, in the relevant countries. Finally, Wei Shi, before we let you go, here in the UAE. Three years ago, Chinese tourists and Chinese residents were becoming increasingly common here in the UAE and and were obviously very welcome here. But obviously with COVID-19, that hasn't happened over the past three years. What are the prospects for people like you or other Chinese business people or tourists getting on a plane and coming to Dubai? We read that COVID restrictions are being eased in China at the moment. To what extent is that true these lockdown restrictions are being eased and when can we see you and some of your fellow countrymen here in the uae yeah that's definitely uh there there's a lot that's happening in china at this moment especially in terms of the uh, pandemic containment policies most of the restrictions have been lifted and uh, we are believe we are expecting that uh restrictions uh on international travel to be further lifted by early next year. So we're uh, here at the EIU, we're expecting that uh, international travelers, both inbound and outbound, will will pick up uh, probably the second half of next year. However, there's uh, also a concern of the income shock, uh, which means that uh, people's income were affected by the very restrictive uh, uh, very restrictive uh, com- uh, containment uh, measures over the past year. Uh, and people will be, uh, less willing to you know, travel immediately, even after the, the restrictions were lifted. So this might still be some time, but we're confident that by the year of 2024, uh, outbound uh, travelers from China to other countries, including the uh, UAE, will, will, will likely to recover to the normal level. Well, I hope, Wei Shi, that you and I can be having a cup of coffee on the Bund or sitting down to lunch in the French Quarter in Shanghai sometime soon. It's a wonderful city. I love it. Uh, And I hope you could be here in Dubai sooner rather than later. But for now, thanks very much indeed for joining us to give us your take on that Saudi-China deal signed overnight. Xi Jinping is in Riyadh as the voice of Wei Shi Zi. He's the director at the Economist Intelligence Unit in Shanghai. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk the metaphor if we can. And the metaverse and its place in the world of retail, more specifically luxury retail. Uh, Shalhoub is a name that is synonymous with luxury retail here in the region and further afield. They've conducted their much uh, uh, waited for and highly anticipated latest study into what the metaverse means for luxury retail here in the Gulf. To uh, bring us some of the findings and to dig a little deeper into those findings, we're joined now by the group's head of corporate innovation uh, at the Shalhoub Group, Nick Vinkia, who joins us live here in studio. Nick, thanks for your time this morning. Uh, Good morning and thank you for having me. Very kind of you to join us live here in our own little studio as well. I think Shalhoub and I think extraordinary showrooms. I think uh, the lap of luxury. I think of that extraordinary customer experience that Patrick and the rest of the team have built over the years. Obviously, with COVID, uh, we saw the e-commerce and the online presence get bigger and bigger and bigger. It was there before COVID as well. The metaverse is something new to me. How does a luxury fashion group synonymous with that hands-on-hand, face-to-face customer experience work in the metaverse? 
Well, it's a very good question. And maybe if we take one step back, I think um, luxury is indeed synonymous with great customer experience, but it's not only uh, offline, uh, having face-to-face um, experiences in the store. And so for a couple of years now, we have been investing um, a lot of, of resources into an omni-channel experience. So whether you're at home, at your couch and want to shop uh, uh, through the app or website, or if you visit the mall in, in one of the, the beautiful flagship stores uh, that we have, we try to give you that luxury experience. And now the metaverse um, is the experiential layer of the internet, the new wave of the web. And also there we want to deliver that luxury experience to our customers. Quite often, you know, we get reports like this and, and, and people have spoken to 30 people and they've created a report, etc. You spoke to over 1,600 consumers across the region yes. as well. So it's a significant piece of research. What did it tell us about how your customers are using the metaverse at the moment? Well, the results were were uh, positively shocking to us. So um, it's indeed true. Uh, there's been some talks and there's a lot of buzz about uh, crypto, NFTs, metaverse. But um, it's very hard to find a study that gives you true um, yeah, uh, good insights with, with enough data uh, on the adoption rate and the expectations towards uh, this new technology, let's say. Um, so that's why we decided to invest massively into this report. And um, what we've seen is that the adoption rate here in the, the Middle East amongst the luxury consumers is significantly high. So uh, 48% of the luxury consumers in the GC own cryptocurrencies. We thought it was going to be 10 20%, maybe 25 at most. But when we got the report, 48% uh, of, of people own cryptocurrencies in the luxury consumer segment. Uh, 23% of, of our luxury cons- consumers own NFTs. 23% as well uh, have been engaging in meta uh, in metaverse in uh, some sort of uh, form or shape. Uh, so whether it's visiting metaverse platforms or buying something in gaming platforms or whatever. So we see a massive potential um, for luxury brands to, to experiment and I, invest. I get that. And I think a lot of people you know, are fascinated by the metaverse. A lot of people are dipping in at the moment having a little look around, see if it's something for them, seeing what the potential is. But are people actually, are people spending in the metaverse at the moment? If they're spending, is it only with cryptos and NFTs? And if they are spending, what are they buying? Well, I think, um, that, that, yeah, again, very good question. The, the, if we take a step back, um, to reach mass adoption uh, as, a, as, a, as an industry, let's say, we will need to embrace um, a, a more low barrier form of entry and so crypto and nfts is uh, from a technical point of view a little bit complex and is scaring for a lot of people we've seen it in the report as well that the main fear for or the main obstacle for cryptocurrency is volatility and the lack of trust so we will need to uh, embrace um, fiat forms of payment uh, for people to make their uh, entry into the metaverse now what we see is that uh, on average people that are already in the metaverse are spending two hours per day on average in those metaverse activities Mm. and uh, plus 75% are already spending money by buying skins, buying upgrades, buying uh, new levels in in their metaverse platforms. So the people that are already engaging are very, very active. So what's it mean for you? Obviously, it's a great piece of research for us uh, and a lot of people reacting to it. But from from a group's point of view, what does this piece of research and the findings from it allow you to do? Well, for us, it's um, 
we always have this, this uh, we have innovation in our DNA, right? So um, we already started experimenting a lot with, uh, with anything in Web3. So we launched our uh, NF first NFT collection with Christoffel back in May. We've had uh, virtual wearables. Uh, last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we launched a, a digital wearable with level shoes and uh, Lanvin. Uh, so we've been experimenting left, right and center. Now, this study has shown us where to focus um, and validating that we were actually already on the good path. We've got questions coming in, Nick. Uh, Asif has written, oh, sorry, um, Abdul Salam has written in saying, the main reason for visiting a store is to try things on for size and fit. How can the metaverse help in this scenario? Well, obviously, um, what we're seeing is that the metaverse is a very wide um, term. Yeah? So, um, we can improve the customer experience with virtual try-ons. So um, to the metaverse is not only a metaverse platform. Eh? So it's not only about Fortnite or Roblox or other platforms where you go and visit with your little avatar. Uh, what we're also seeing is that there's uh, technology such as VR, AR, smart lenses, smart glasses. So imagine if we're here and you can, uh, we can see each other with a virtual skin, uh, so a virtual jacket or something like that, uh, beamed through our glasses. So you could see the fit, you could see the colors uh, like that without having to go to a store. Um, will it replace offline? Never, obviously not. Eh? So we started the conversation with that luxury experience offline in store that will never disappear. We will always uh, have an essential part of, of shopping through e-commerce as well. But now the metaverse will be a third essential aspect of uh, luxury or even just retail in as a whole. So how do you budget for something like this? Because, again, we are very much at the, the, the outset of what the potential of metaverse will be for groups, etc. Do you budget accordingly and where does the sort of revenue stream fit in today it's um the, the revenues that we um foresee for this are very low uh, so that's why it's sitting in in my department of corporate innovation because it's very uh, it's in a very experimental stage uh, for our business so we don't really expect huge revenues we are testing and learning and um as we see revenues growing and the potential becoming bigger, we invest more and more. So in our yearly budget, uh, we, uh, we, we um, adapt it according to the outcome of the experiments that we see. So the, the next couple of years, we still foresee experimentation that is ramping up in size um, to, to a point where I believe in 2025, we will switch towards uh, embedding the metaverse in, in a more sustainable way into our business. Just like we've done with e-commerce before. We started with one website, another website. Now all, almost all, all our brands have a, a native apps, and now it's integral part of our business. It's the GCC State of the Metaverse and its potential for luxury retail from Shalhoub Group. Uh, Nick, thanks so much indeed for coming in to tell us a little bit more. Nick Vingier is the Head of Corporate Innovation at Shalhoub Group. We thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.